So much adorableness. Yes. It is that time of year, friends. I love it when the church is decorated for Christmas. I have to admit to you that with each passing year, I look forward to the decorations going up here and at home even more. And controversial, I recognize, but I'm okay with each passing year with the music getting played a little earlier and a little earlier. Not everyone is, but with old age, I'm enjoying more and more. Yes. We have Advent bags that are out there on the table for families, and so you can pick that up, families. And today we are beginning our Christmas sermon series, which is entitled, God Is. We are going to be looking at the attributes of God that can be clearly seen in the coming of Jesus to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. We're not going to look at all of the attributes of God that can be seen, but we're going to be looking at some of the key attributes of God that we can see in the sending of Jesus Christ, His Son, to the earth. And today, we are going to start off with an attribute that is filled with comfort and encouragement for us, the sovereignty of God. Right? God is sovereign, and it can be seen so clearly in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to celebrate that today and take encouragement from that. But before we go any further, we need to ask the key question, what in the world does that mean that God is sovereign? Right? What, what does it mean that God is sovereign? And I would say this, when God determines something will happen, it will happen. That is the sovereignty of God. He, he has all power, knowledge, and authority. There is no one and nothing with enough strength or power to overcome what God says is going to happen. So what he decrees will happen is going to happen. And God's sovereignty is seen throughout the scriptures, but it particularly has attention called to it in passages like Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Right? God will accomplish all that he decrees. It's talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What percentage of things does God work according to the counsel of his will? Right? All things are worked according to the counsel of God's will. Now, that does not mean that God is the primary actor in every action that takes place, but it does mean that he is sovereignly guiding all of those decisions that are made, the good and the bad, all of those things that are outside of human control, into his ultimate good and his purposes. And so we would say Judas, as an example, is responsible for the decision that he made in order to betray Christ. He is the primary actor in that situation. And yet God in his sovereignty is working all of that, the good and the evil all together, in order to bring about his greatest purposes for humanity. I love the way that Job talks about the sovereignty of God in Job 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
There is nothing and no one strong enough to thwart the purposes of God. What He decrees is going to happen is going to happen. And we can see the sovereignty of God in Jesus being born when He wanted that to happen, where He wanted it to happen, and to whom He wanted it to happen. When did God come up with the plan for Jesus to come to earth in order to provide salvation for us. There are times where you may hear someone speak of God's saving plan as if he had to come up with it on the spur of the moment when Adam and Eve chose to sin. Right? Oh no, look at what they've done. I've got to come up with something now. But, but in fact, the Bible teaches something very different than that, that Jesus was the plan from before anything was made. So that we read in passages like 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, knowing that you were ransomed, right? We, we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus was made manifest, right? The Son of God was born into the world when? In these last times. But the fact that Jesus was the plan in order to show the grace, mercy, and love of God was known and determined before the foundations of the world. That's why Titus chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, speaking of our salvation, says, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Or Ephesians 1.4, speaking of us being chosen in Christ, says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God chose to send Jesus into the world as the Lamb who would be slain on behalf of His people before anything was made and before any time had taken place. That means that when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't say, oh no, what do we do? God had determined and knew the plan before anything was made of how He was going to show His grace and mercy and love to sinners. And then, He has sovereignly worked throughout human history in order to bring about the birth of Jesus exactly as He wanted it to happen. From the earliest pages of the Bible, God promises to Abraham that there would be a seed or a descendant of Abraham, through whom all nations would be blessed. And no sooner does God make this promise than the promise seems to have been killed off. Because on two different occasions, Abraham tries to give his wife away to other men. And in both of those situations, God sovereignly works through blessings and cursings to say, no, 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 your wife is coming back to you, Abraham. The promise seems to have died when Abraham and Sarah extend life beyond childbearing years. And yet God is sovereignly at work in order to produce Isaac to continue that chosen line that would lead to that descendant. All of the promises that were given to Abraham are reaffirmed for his grandson, Jacob. And yet it looks like Jacob and the chosen line are going to come to an end when a great famine comes on the land. And he and his sons look as though they are going to starve to death. But God sovereignly is at work 
through the evil actions of a group of the brothers selling Joseph off into slavery. God is at work for years, for decades, preparing Joseph to be second in charge of Egypt, czar of food distribution, so that ultimately the chosen line will be saved and provided for through this sovereign act of God. Jacob's son Judah is promised that one would come from his line who would be a ruler forever and the obedience of the people would be his. No sooner is that promise made than the people of Israel fall into slavery in Egypt and it looks like the promise is going to come to a terrible end. And yet God redeems his people out of that slavery and the line continues. They go into the promised land, and it looks like the line, that, that chosen line of the seed who, through whom all people will be blessed is going to come to an end again when Naomi and her husband choose to move from Bethlehem to Moab. And now there is a danger that the chosen line is going to become Moabites. More than that, then, all of the men in the family die, and there are no children to continue the line, and it looks like the promise of God is dead. But God is sovereignly at work in order to bring Naomi back to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law and work the chosen line through this redeemer, Boaz and Ruth. God, God makes a promise to David. Are we having fun? God makes a promise to David. Right? David, someone is going to sit on your throne forevermore. And it isn't that long after that when it appears that that promise has failed because the Babylonians come in and take all of the people, all of the line of David captive. But God restores his people and he restores the line. God promised 700 years before Jesus that when that seed of Abraham was born, it would be born in Bethlehem. And it appears that that promise had failed because the Babylonians take all of the people of, ba of Bethlehem away with them. But God restores the people to that town. And then, oh, you guys, in an unbelievable act of sovereignty, works in the heart and mind of the most powerful and godless man on the planet, Caesar Augustus, to call a census at just the right time so that Mary and Joseph, who don't live where they need to be living in order to fulfill the promises of God the way he designed, have to travel down to this town and give birth to the Son of God exactly where God said it would happen, when it would happen, how it would happen. That is the sovereign hand of God. Again and again, people are doing their very best to ruin the promise of God through their sin and their stupidity. And yet God, through His sovereign hand, keeps guiding it back again and again, using all of the good and all of the bad of people in order to form it to exactly the point that He wants where His Son will be born. What a beautiful thing the sovereign hand of God is. And it is of great comfort and great encouragement to us if we understand it correctly. So this sovereignty we see in the birth of Jesus, it matters in our lives. And I want to give you three ways this morning that the sovereignty of God is a comfort and an encouragement to us. Oh yeah, my clicker. The first is this. 
God's sovereignty battles worry about the future. Right? God's sovereignty, properly understood, battles worry about the future. What do we worry about most? Primarily, we worry as we look forward and we instinctively ask the question, am I going to be okay? Is everything going to be all right? Am I going to be okay? Is everything going to be all right? Sometimes we look forward just a few moments and ask those questions. Right? A student who's about to enter into a new classroom for the first time says, am I going to be okay? Is everything going to be all right? From what is going to happen just moments from then. Others are looking decades down the road to retirement and saying, am I going to be okay? Is everything going to be all right? And whether we're talking about looking into the future moments or years, it's those same driving questions that cause worry and anxiety in our lives. Am I going to be okay? Is everything going to be okay? Everything going to be all right? And God promises to His people who are pursuing Him, yes, everything is going to be okay. I will provide everything you need. And because God is sovereign, what are the chances His promises will be fulfilled? Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 is speaking to people like me, maybe like you, who struggle from time to time with worry and anxiety about the future. And what does he do in order to combat that worry? He calls them to a deeper understanding of the sovereignty of God. And so he says to them, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, right? Notice how all of these are future-oriented. Oh, what's going to happen in the future? What you will eat or what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value, of more value than they? What's God teaching His people here? He's teaching them about the sovereignty of God that God in His sovereignty recognizes each and every one of these little unimportant birds that is around us. And He takes care of them. And if God in His sovereignty enacts His goodness in order to care for all of these birds, don't you think He will do so much more for the one who's made in His image, for the one who is following after the King and seeking the kingdom? Of course He will, Jesus says. He will care for all of your needs. And so a few verses later He says, but seek first, instead of worrying about the future, instead seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. God makes a promise here. If you're a person who's seeking the king and the kingdom, God is going to provide everything that you need. And he can do it. Because God has all knowledge, all authority, and all power. When he says he's going to do something, what's going to happen? It's going to happen. What he decrees is going to happen. And he said, he is going to care for you. He's going to meet your needs if you're a person who is pursuing the king and the kingdom. Right? Now, you can trust his promise because he's sovereign. Now, what, what if I said to you, tomorrow it's going to be 81 degrees? Right? Trust me. It's going to be 81 Right? How many of you, based on the fact that I just told you it's going to be 81 degrees, would go home and lay out your shorts and your t-shirt and your sandals and get ready for tomorrow? Right? None of you. None of you, I hope. Why? Because you recognize that I don't have authority. I, I don't have authority and knowledge 
in these areas in order to determine what the weather is going to be tomorrow. You shouldn't trust me when I tell you that it's going to be 81 degrees tomorrow. I don't have the authority to make that happen. But God has all authority and all power in order to make the things happen that he says are going to happen. And what he said is, if I seek the king in his kingdom, he's going to provide everything that I need. Now, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes worry and anxiety creep back into my life because the primary seeking of my heart isn't the king in the kingdom. It's the things that the world says I need. And if I'm primarily interested about getting my wants rather than my needs, if I'm primarily interested about getting the things the world says I need, then worry and anxiety creep back into the picture. But he says, if you'll pursue me, if I am the treasure of your heart, I'm going to provide everything that you genuinely need in life. Can we trust him? Yes, because he is sovereign, right? Because he is sovereign, he will work these things together. God sovereignly battles worry about the future. Whenever I'm struggling with worry or anxiety, the primary place that God has designed for me to go is to him in prayer, in the word, and to soak in the truth of his sovereignty and his goodness. Right? Not, not for me to go to him and say, God, please work this thing out that the world says I need, and please work this thing out that the world... No, to just go and spend time praising and thanking God for his sovereignty and his goodness. It realigns those perspectives that are needed for peace in my life. God's sovereignty battles worry about the future. The second thing that we, I want you to see in this passage is God's sovereignty provides hope in any circumstance. Right? It provides hope in any circumstance. All of us go through challenging and difficult times. You may be going through a challenging and difficult time right now. And what I would contend is, it is the sovereignty of God that gives us hope in those situations. When my daughter was little, I mean little, there were times where I would take her and bring her into the pool at the gym that we were members at and try and help her to get used to the water. Why? Because I knew that someday she was going to be standing next to the pool and some 10-year-old boy who thought he was funny was going to shove her in. And at that point, she was either going to sink to the bottom or she was going to swim. And as her dad, my preference would be that she would swim. And so I would take her and bring her down into the water to get her used to the water, to start that process of learning to swim. Now, there were times where the water was cold. And she would let me know, this is unpleasant what you are doing to me right now. She would let me know with loudness, this is unpleasant, Dad, what is going on right now. And yet I would continue to guide her down into the water because of this good that I wanted to see happen in her life. That there was hope for her in the fact that it was her dad guiding her down into the water in that situation. Hope that she would get back out of the water. Hope that there was some good that would come from being in the water. That hope was dependent upon being in her father's arms in those moments. What if she had just randomly 
accidentally fallen in the pool? Right? What if uh, baby Madeline was just sitting out there next to the pool? Our parenting doesn't come off very good in this illustration, by the way. Right? What if baby Madeline was just sitting out there next to the pool and just happened to roll into the pool? What hope is there for her in that situation? What hope is there that some good is going to come out of this that she is experiencing? The hope is the fact that dad is a part of guiding her into this, that he has a greater good in mind as we do it, that he's the one who can ultimately lift her out of this. And the same is true in our life. If we understand the difficult and painful circumstances of our life to just be happenstance, what just happened... What hope is there for us in that? What hope is there that those circumstances will come to an end? What hope is there that good can come out of those difficult circumstances? The hope is that God is involved in guiding that process. Again, as I say, God is the one who is guiding that process. Please don't hear me say that God ever works directly wickedness against us. God does not and He cannot do that. But God does use the pain inflicted by others and the challenges we experience in this broken world. He uses that all as a part of what brings a greater good into our life. He promises it in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Like with Matthew 6, I want you to notice this is a conditional promise, isn't it? Matthew 6 says, God will provide absolutely, He'll add everything that you need if you're a person who's seeking the king and the kingdom. Right here, right, there are conditions. Who is it that God works everything for good for? It's those who love God and are called according to His purpose. The promise is for them and them alone that God will work everything out for good. And so if that is you, Right? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you love God, right, this promise is for you that he will work all things together for good in our lives. Sometimes I experience frustration because my definition of good doesn't match God's definition of good. Sometimes my definition of good is what is most comfortable as I make my way through life. Sometimes my definition of good is what will get me the, most, the maximum number of years in this life. Sometimes my definition of good is what will get me more things in this life or more people to like me. When those things are my definition of good, there will be regular frustration because God is not working towards that good in my life. He's working towards good as He defines it. And he defines it in the very next verse for us, right? He works all things together for good. What is that? For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God says, I define good as you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in your character. That's good. That's how I'm able to look at even the most severe trials and pain in my life and according to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, consider them pure joy. Not because they feel good, but because of what they produce in life. Greater Christ-likeness in us. I think there are some goods that God works into life that we will only understand 
when we perfectly see things from his perspective in eternity one day. When we see the entire tapestry that he has woven together. I think of a man I knew several years ago who was diagnosed with cancer and he was given 18 months to live. Over the course of the approximately 18 months that he lived before he passed away, those 18 months were filled with pain and the deterioration of his body. All of us who saw that looked at that and said, boy, that doesn't seem good. And yet, what I recognize about that man is that this is someone who had always taken God very casually. Someone who had kind of been a part of church from time to time. They would have called themselves a Christian, but never actually, and they would be the first to admit it, followed Christ with their life. And over the course of that 18 months, they were given this opportunity in order to look at the fact that life was going to come to an end and see if they were prepared or not for that. They were for 18 months able to look and see there's a judgment that is coming on my life. Do I really believe these things I've heard from time to time? Or do I not believe them? Do I really believe I'm going to stand before the judge and that I need a substitute named Jesus Christ? Or do I not? Was it just a nice thing to go to occasionally with my family? And for 18 months, he was given this beautiful opportunity in order to look at the fact that life was going to end and prepare himself for it. Right Now, if life is about comfort and ease, none of that is good. But if life is about him ultimately becoming more like Christ forever throughout eternity, then that is a blessed opportunity that he received during that 18 months and there will be so many more that we can only see clearly when we see through the eyes of the Lord one day in eternity. Friends, I want you to think about these two things in light of the Christmas story. First, think about God's sovereignty and how it battles worry about the future. Think about that in light of the Christmas story. Think about it in light of Mary. An angel appears to Mary. And what is the message of the angel to Mary? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The Most High is going to overshadow you. And even though you are a virgin, you are going to become pregnant. And oh, by the way, that kid is going to be the one and only Son of God. What? If there was ever anyone in all of human history who had the right to look forward and say, Is it going to be okay? Is this going to be all right? It was that 14-year-old girl who received this message from the Lord, right? I mean, think of all of the questions that could have gone through her head at this point. Uh, what is Joseph going to think when I tell him that I am pregnant and yet still a virgin? Is he going to believe me? Is he going to leave me and end our betrothal? What does it mean to be overshadowed by the Most High? Are you kidding me? There, there's no precedent for this. Is that painful? Like, what does that look like? What does it mean to be pregnant with the Son of God? Is there a body involved in that? When I give birth, will I be giving birth to an actual human being? What does it mean to give birth to the Son of God? 
Uh, how do you raise the Son of God? Parenting has certain pressure with it, but, but what is the pressure level when you're the parent of the one and only Son of God? There's a fair amount of pressure in that. And again, to go back to the beginning, will I be doing it alone, she asked? Will my friends and my family abandon me in this as I'm pregnant and can't point to a dad anywhere in the picture? Think of all that went through her mind in the midst of this time, and yet what is her response to the angel? Let it be to me as you have said. Right? Let it be to me as you have said. I have to believe that it is a trust in the sovereignty of God that kept Mary from having a panic attack at this point. Right? I mean, how, how would you not have a panic attack? You're going to be overshadowed by the Most High. You're going to give birth to the Son of God, whatever that means and whatever that looks like. And by the way, you're still a virgin and you're betrothed, but that's probably going to... Like, how would you not have a panic attack as you looked forward and said, is it going to be okay? Is this all going to work out? And yet perhaps what we pick up from Mary is this deep trust in the sovereignty of God. What God has said he's going to do, he's going to do, and he does it for our good. She trusts. i got to believe that's the only way she made it through this time was a trust in the sovereignty of God. Th think about the second point, God's sovereignty providing hope in any circumstances for Mary and Joseph when they find out, wait, we've got to go to Bethlehem? She's about to give birth. Now we've got to travel 90 miles on foot Oh, and by the way, we don't really have a place to stay when we get there. That, that sure seems to be the situation. And now we're going to give birth out among the animals. I mean, all of these are, are challenging and hard circumstances. If you were in the midst of that, again and again, wouldn't you be going, huh, how do I make it through this? How do I make it through this? And yet God in his sovereignty is working in the midst of these challenging circumstances in order to provide what is best. And again, Mary seems to recognize it as she sings about how blessed she is in Luke chapter 1. As she ponders all of these things in her heart and recognizes that what God has been doing is what is best for her and Joseph and their spiritual well-being. What he's doing is best for salvation. If the Son of God had been born... Uh, in the temple, people might think salvation is only for the Jews. If he'd been born in the palace, people might think salvation is only for the upper class. But instead, he is born in a place where it is clear that this is good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, right? All the people. And God works through his sovereign hand in order to provide the things that are best in these situations. The final comfort and encouragement that we take here is that God's sovereignty provides assurance of our inheritance. God's sovereignty provides insurance of our inheritance. God is the one who is seen that I get from this place in my salvation to the ultimate inheritance that is mine in Jesus Christ. He, he is the one who is responsible for that. Do you remember we just studied the Holy Spirit and we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And when we did, we saw that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. 
The Holy Spirit has sealed our salvation. Not only that, next sentence, he is the guarantee of the inheritance that is to come. He's the seal that we belong to God. He's the guarantee that that inheritance will be ours. It is in the hands of God that we will get from here to the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. And praise God that it is in his hands. That isn't to say that God has not given us things that we are to do in order to grow. To, as Paul says, work out our salvation in fear and trembling. But... The primary responsibility to get us from here to the inheritance that is ours in glory belongs to God. And it is such a joy and encouragement that that is true because if it was up to me, I would lose my salvation in a week. Right? As feeble as I am, as sinful as I am, as messy as I am, I am so thankful that me getting from here to the ultimate inheritance that is mine in Christ Jesus isn't up to me. It is up to him. I am firmly in the hand of God and he will not release me. And because God has sovereignly chosen you with all knowledge, he knows everything that you were going to do wrong and have done wrong. There is never a time where God has buyer's remorse about purchasing your salvation. Right? We have all had buyer's remorse at some point. Uh, 20 some odd years ago, I bought a Dodge Grand Caravan used and it was such a lemon. There were so many times when I was driving it and I had buyer's remorse. Actually, there were so many times when it wouldn't drive when I had buyer's remorse about that vehicle. I had buyer's remorse because I didn't know what was coming. God perfectly and completely knows all that is coming and he has sovereignly chosen you in the midst of that. He knows everything that you ever have done wrong or will done wrong. And so there's never a time in your life where you do something and God said, they did what? Right? He's never surprised by that and he never has buyer's remorse. He knew it all going in ahead of time so that Romans chapter 5 says it was while you were in the midst of your sin that Christ died for you. It was while you were at your very worst that Christ put his life on the line, gave up his life, shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And so, as Romans 8 says, if God has purchased your justification in this way, won't he also give you all things that are a part of salvation? Yes. He will sovereignly work in your life to bring you to the place of completion. The one who has started a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus because he is sovereign. Oh, there's so much good news in that. All of the good news is about the fact that I am not the one who is responsible to carry my salvation to its completion. It is about him, our sovereign God who is good. We're thankful for that. Every time we come before the Lord's table, we celebrate that fact. The fact that I didn't work to get this done, Jesus worked to get it done. The fact that it isn't on me in order to make sure this is completed, he's the one who has guaranteed it will be completed and will sovereignly work to do it. And so I want to invite us to celebrate that again as we move towards the Lord's Supper. As we look at these three encouragements that come with the sovereignty of God, These three comforts in our life that come with the sovereignty of God. 
I'd invite us to be preparing our hearts to go to the table to recognize that what I have contributed to all of this is sin and brokenness. But the Lord has been my substitute. He is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world so that I might be forgiven of my sins. And now He is the one who is at work, His Spirit sealing me in Christ his spirit acting as the guarantee of the inheritance that is mine in Christ Jesus. He is the one who is at work, growing me, strengthening me in what God has for me. And believer, the same is true in your life. As we come to the table, if you're a follower of Jesus, we want you to take these elements with us. They're a reminder to us of what Jesus has done in order to bring about our salvation, past, present, and future. And we say thank you to him and we remember him as we take these elements.